It's Thursday, August 16th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Freedom of the press is guaranteed only to those who own one, so said A.J. Liebling. It's one of those quotes you don't hear so much anymore, mostly because in this age of social media, it's not true. Or it is true insofar as the definition of press is that phone in your pocket right now, that page that's probably opened up on your laptop as we speak. But it was never really true in the sense that the press would like us to believe. Press freedom is the unusual kind of freedom in that the press fights for it and often pays the cost for it, but society reaps the rewards. That's at least how it's supposed to work. And even if freedom of the press really was relegated to those who owned one, the benefits of freedom of the press would accrue to us all. But these days, the press feels under siege. I don't know if the press is under siege. I guess I should say are, but I'm going to say is under siege. But it's certainly, they're certainly being ignorantly criticized by the president of the United States. In fact, the recent poll by Ipsos shows that 43% of self-identified Republicans said they believed, quote, the president should have the authority to close news outlets engaged in bad behavior. 36% disagreed. So having heard that statistic, you might say, well, that does sound under siege. But here's the thing. In 1985, the LA Times asked this question. Generally speaking, do you favor or oppose permitting the courts to fine the news media for publishing or broadcasting stories that are biased or inaccurate? And in 1985, 56% of Republicans were in favor of that and 22% were opposed. And by the way, Democrats and independents weren't far behind. It's not exactly the same question, but it does point out that there was an anti-free press instinct out there for years. And I don't know if Trump has heightened it or just been able to corral it and say, oh yeah, that was my idea the whole time. So the newspapers feel they have to react. So today, over 200 editorial boards got together to say, and Moss, Trump bad press good. I thought this little bit of saber rattling bordering on caterwauling by the press was mostly for their benefit, not ours. I don't disagree with the sentiment. It just felt a little needy little grandiose to me. I say, keep your head down, keep doing your job. Do we really need the editorial boards to hold themselves up as yet another minor skirmish in the culture wars? But there was one editorial I read that may have made the whole exercise worth it. So realize this, the purpose of a newspaper editorial, what's it to do? It's to influence opinion. So I was wondering, I wonder if any of the newspapers actually have changed their mind now that they have seen Trump. In 2016, there were 348 daily newspapers that made an endorsement. 20 endorsed Trump out of 348. Not all of the rest endorsed Hillary. Some endorsed Gary Johnson. Some endorsed, quote, not Trump. But of the newspapers with a circulation over 100,000, so the large or large-ish papers, only two endorsed Trump. One was the Las Vegas Review Journal, and one was the Florida Times Union. Now, the RJ, as they call it out there in LV, is owned by big Trump donor Sheldon Adelson, did not participate in today's mass editorial. And I checked out most of the 18 other smaller dailies. I didn't see any evidence that they participated, but the Florida Times Union did. The Jacksonville-based daily endorsed Trump in 2016 with these words, Trump is the change agent America needs. And it stated in that editorial in 2016, Trump is making the powerless feel powerful 
the nation needs this. Trump is the better candidate to provide it. If Trump breaks a little China along the way, the country is strong enough to survive. Frankly, we don't think Trump is going to be the disaster that Hillary Clinton's fans predict. They didn't explicitly say that they have rethought that assessment, but today they wrote an editorial that rebuked Trump, and it said this, The level of anger and emotion in the public sphere today is forcing out legitimate information. A democratic republic, as the founding fathers wrote, depends on an informed electorate, but the well of information is being poisoned. There's plenty of blame to go around, but it must start with the most powerful person in America, the president of the United States. The Times Union editorial board, which is conservative, did put plenty of blame on the media themselves, but they also endorsed the idea of bringing back the position of ombudsman. And they wrote, the president needs to tone down his toxic rhetoric. It simply isn't worthy of the high office that he holds. And their words in conclusion were this. Who is the real loser in this war between the media and Trump? The answer is all too clear. It's America. Florida Times Union. Normally the Blake Bortles of editorial boards. Good on you, I say. On the show today, I spiel about the next salvo in the war on straws. But first, the Queen of Soul has died. And Chris Malanfi stops by with this appreciation of Aretha Franklin. Appreciation, of course, being a tribute given to one who earns respect. Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul, is dead at the age of 76. But before she was the Queen of Soul, she was perhaps the greatest gospel singer of her age and what she became and what she represented transcended genre. Joining me now is Chris Malamphy. He is the host of the Hit Parade podcast. We're going to talk about Aretha's place on the charts and in our consciousness and in music. Hello, Chris. How are you? Hello, Mike. So she started being called the Queen of Soul pretty late in her career. She was famous already before then, right? Well, she was born into gospel royalty. Her father was C.L. Franklin, a renowned, I mean, very renowned Detroit preacher. In the world of gospel and uh, spiritual music, she was to the manor born, so to speak. The problem was until the late 1960s, even after getting signed uh, to uh, other record labels, people really didn't fully know what to do with her. Um, her five or six years on the Columbia label is pretty much a wash commercially. Yeah. It isn't until she's signed to the Atlantic label by Jerry Wexler in, uh, I believe, 1966. The album comes out in 1967 that Aretha really finds – it's, I guess it's wrong to say this, but her voice, not so much finds her voice in the sense that she was already a great vocalist, but finds that sound. The public finds her voice is what happens because that she too. connects to them with the Muscle Shoals sound yes. and the soul sound unless the gospel sound. Precisely. Yeah. And, and, you know, much the way Ray Charles had several years before her, Aretha is taking spiritual music and, you know, taking it out of the church and, and bringing it to secular concerns and, and romance and love and sex. And that combination was the very backbone of what Rhythm and Blues was. So she's from Detroit, but not a Motown artist. Not a Motown artist. And what's the significance of that? Well, it was widely rumored. In fact, it's long confirmed that Barry Gordy was scouting her and was eager to sign her to the label. C.L. Franklin, her father, basically, uh, you know, refused, knowing that she wasn't meant to be part of the famed Motown assembly line. Yeah. Uh, not to 
slight anything on Motown. My goodness, we have, you know, Motown to thank for everybody from Stevie Wonder to Smokey Robinson to Michael Jackson. But the Detroit Motown sound, which was very much uh, about pop crossover and about a certain kind of very direct pop, uh, was not exactly Aretha's sound. And it was not, uh, it's not where someone like Sam Cooke was recording his music. And yeah. it, it wasn't right for Aretha. It either. seemed like more cooing to the listener and less full frontal than Aretha was being, less blatant, maybe even a little challenging to the listener. Yeah. And, you know, what happens when Aretha finally teams up with Atlantic Records and that Muscle Shoals rhythm section is, there's a a grit, a grease on the arrangements that had not existed, not only in her music before, but a lot of um, crossover soul music before. I mean, you you heard it certainly on Wilson Pickett Records, Otis Redding, but Aretha hits on this amalgam that is both resolutely commercial, as commercial as Motown. Mm -hmm. She scored an insane number of top 10 hits in 1967 and 68 alone. Everything from um, Respect, her cover of the Otis Redding song, Utterly Transformative. Otis famously said, That Little Girl Stole My Song, to Chain of Fools, uh, Baby I Love You, I Say a Little Prayer. I mean, you know, it's just hit after hit after hit. And yet it's got that Southern... Uh, grit crossed with her, you know, Detroit preacher's daughter's voice. Um, and it's an irrepressible, irresistible combination. What made Aretha's respect the not only the uh, definitive version of that song, but her signature song? What do you think the secret sauce, the difference between the very fine Otis Redding recording was? Mm-hmm. I mean, Otis Redding's respect is a plea for respect from within a male-female dynamic or a relationship between a man and a woman. All I ask is that you give me my respect, give me my propers when I get home. To some extent, it has been written that Otis Redding's respect was more than a romantic or a uh, an anthem for a couple. It was a, it was something of a civil rights anthem. Yeah. It was a demand for respect. Think about the time. Think about the milieu. Yeah. Precisely. So it's not as if it didn't have some politics baked into it from the jump. Aretha turns it into a feminist anthem. When people ask me what my favorite cover song of all time is, I pretty much reach for Respect because I can't think of a more transformative cover than Respect, where you no longer, you barely even remember the original, which is saying something because the yeah. Otis Redding original is not shabby at all. It's a phenomenal record. Yeah. Greatest love of all, maybe too. But anyway, this might sound weird, but this is just my first real exposure to her. Although you always knew that uh, respect was in the air and many of her different hits. But the Blues Brothers, I thought the Blues Brothers was pretty big for Aretha Franklin. Well, the Blues Brothers, that movie comes out in, I believe, 1980. And by then, Aretha's had an interesting 70s. Basically, if you divide the 70s into two halves, she'd had an amazing early 70s and a bit of a rough late 70s. As with so many artists, and particularly R&B artists, disco was tough on them, and some artists adapted to disco better than others. Uh, Aretha famously tried her hand at disco very briefly, and it didn't really go anywhere for her. Um, She actually adapted far better to the sound of the 1980s than she did to the late 70s. The Blues Brothers helped because it kind of ushered her into the 1980s and reminded people what a powerhouse she was. Uh, Her performance of Think in that movie is just spectacular. I mean, an already great song already was a hit at the uh, end of the 60s. So there is a debate. Did she have the greatest voice of all time? It's very hard to compare opera 
to soul to even gospel. Mahalia Jackson, some people say, had the greatest voice of all time. How do we how do we know? Like, what's the uh, how do you judge it? Um, among vocalists I've been alive for, I can't think of one who wowed me more, impressed me more, blew me away more than Aretha Franklin. Particularly when you think of the arc of soul singing, other vocalists, either they would have the power or they would have the technique and they would show off the technique, almost like, you know, a math problem, showing your work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or or like on American Idol, they do a melisma and it's very much, look at me. Well, you said the M word. I mean, melisma is something I have a very, I'm speaking personally right now. I have a very fraught relationship with melisma. I feel it's been overused uh, in a lot of popular singing, R&B singing, um, it's been used to phenomenal effect. Stevie Wonder is, is famed for his melisma and his melisma is amazing. Uh, melisma, of course, for those who are wondering what I'm talking about is, uh, when a single syllable of a song or a word, uh, you know, sounds like it has four or five, uh, notes because you're you know going ranging up and down the scale think of the way mariah carey sings think of the way um christina aguilera sings aretha was not one for pyrotechnics for their own sake she had a voice clear as a bell and i don't think i'm borrowing this idea from my colleague jack hamilton but he says in his piece and i totally agree that you can really divide 20th century singing into before aretha franklin and after in A post-rock and roll context, I'm not sure there was a better vocalist because everything she did was the bar against which most singing was judged. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a a God-given gift. It's genius in the way that Leonardo da Vinci is genius. Not like he didn't work, but it's a form of genius. It is a form of genius. And um, let's also not forget that when she sang for uh, President Barack Obama at – the Kennedy Center honors uh, a few years ago. Uh, some people forget that the person being honored that night was Carol King. Mm. Uh, and, the per- <laughs> and the performance that Aretha did was, you know, one of King's most famous compositions, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman, which, of course, Aretha utterly transformed in her hit version. <laughs> Aretha comes out at uh, the Kennedy Center honors. She puts her purse on the piano. She sits down at the piano and she blows the whole room away. And again, this is a woman in her early to mid seventies with this Titanic performance. President Obama has tears in his eyes, uh, as does Carol King herself. Everybody's on their feet. Um, It was like one final reminder of, you know, why she was the queen of soul. Where'd the harum, where'd that part come from, do you know? I I am going to guess that the harum yeah. came from Aretha. I mean, seem, she was yeah. a genius at those kind of, you know, working with her backing vocalists um, to really utterly transform a song. One of my favorite little factoids about Aretha Franklin was at the turn of the 70s, there was this moment where a number of white male 
rock singer-songwriters were doing songs that were utterly indebted to gospel. Um, and Aretha, one by one, basically knocked them all off. She basically <laughs> covered all of them. She's the first person to release uh, a version of Let It Be, Paul McCartney's Beatles composition. Uh, that's because McCartney passed a demo of the song to Jerry Wexler before the Beatles version came out in the spring of 1970, kind of hoping Aretha would sing it, and she did it, and of course she crushed it. And then a year later, the biggest hit of all for her, uh, a number one hit on the R&B chart, top 10 hit on the pop chart, uh, her cover of Paul Simon's Bridge Over Troubled Water, you know, where um, Paul Simon, when he recorded it with Art Garfunkel, was going for majestic, towering. Um, Aretha finds the gospel underpinnings and she makes it almost more easygoing. It, it has a lilt to it and she takes it to church. It's it's call and response. Uh, she lets her backing vocalist start it off, you know, don't trouble the water. You know, they kick it off, not her. I won't get it on. Why don't you, why don't you? What do you think her legacy is going to be? That which Aretha bridged into life that we're still seeing or that is being transformed. I mean, how do you begin to summarize a career this um, multifarious, this huge? The title, The Queen of Soul, is retired for all time. Mm -hmm. I I don't imagine anyone else uh, will have a claim on that title. I think she earned it. And what I would love is for, as folks reflect on Aretha Franklin's achievements as a recording artist and as as a performer, they reflect on her total musicianship, not just this, you know, God-given gift of her voice that she had. That's, you know, unquestioned. But the sense of musicality, the sense of arrangement, uh, the piano playing – She's like James Brown in the sense that, you know, she could take players like the Muscle Shoals rhythm section, anybody she was recording with from Whitney Houston to George Michael to Elton John and transform both their compositions and their singing. And I think the reason why we're all feeling the loss so acutely uh, today is uh, we know we're never going to see anyone quite like her again. Chris Malamphy is the host of the Slate Podcast Hit Parade. Thank you so much, Chris. You're very welcome, Mike. And now the spiel. I've talked about on this show the plastic straw menace, that it accounts for 0.03% of total plastic waste by mass in the oceans. 0.03%, that is 3 in 10,000. 3 in 10,000. So let's say this. Let's say you went and listened to two weeks worth of just episodes in a row. Two-thirds of a second is the equivalent of the percent of total plastic waste that straws make up in the ocean. Uh, To bring it even more into perspective, remember on last Tuesday, I was talking about the Ohio 12th special election. And at one point I said, oh, Yeah, that, that was the percent of two weeks worth of shows that straws are in the actual and real and urgent problem of plastic in the ocean. Tiny, 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 tiny problem. 
There was almost no scholarship about any actual improvement a straw ban would have on the world. And I do think it would have costs. Costs like the fact that I enjoy straws. I very much enjoy my kids not spilling sodas on themselves during Nets games, which is a simple pleasure I will not be able to experience this upcoming season because the Barclays Center, where the Nets play, have banned straws. As any Nets fan can tell you, not spilling drinks on ourselves was the one thing we always had to look forward to during a season. Let's go, Nets. Let's avoid dry cleaning bills. You know the Nets. Their offense wasn't fluid, but their fluids weren't offensive. And now they are. Okay. But what we are told is that the straw ban, though meaningless, though the people who invented it acknowledge that it's meaningless, it could mean to something meaningful. Here's a Vox article. Quote, on a macro scale, it's important to look at the plastic straw ban for what it really is, a first step toward drastically limiting plastic in the ocean. How realistic is that leap? Part of the answer to this question can be found in a little-known theory called spillover. The idea that engaging in a single behavior can psychologically motivate us to engage in either more or less similar behaviors. This idea goes back to an effort to pick on the straw, not because it actually affects the health of the ocean, but because it could be, and this is an actual phrase that was used in the Vox article and another article I'm about to quote, a gateway plastic. (laughs) Dune Ives, who is the executive director of the Lonely Whale Foundation, let us now go to those whales. The Lonely Whale Foundation, she designs and leads change-making ocean conservation initiatives to address key drivers of environmental degradation and species decline. She also has a PhD in psychology. Now, here is her original article on why a straw ban. She wrote, As our team explored the myriad options of plastic pollution to find the perfect entry point to incent behavior change, we found plastic water bottles too endemic. Plastic bags, already somewhat politicized, and no viable alternative to the plastic cup in all markets. So what they did is they looked at all the things that really did matter and could matter and contributed in a major way to the problem of plastic in the ocean, and they found them just a little too hard to tackle. So let's pick on the straws, because that'll have no real effect, but it might lead to some sort of plastic ban contagion, a frenzy of plastic rejection. Hey, let's not use something plastic. Everybody's doing it. Ives goes on to say about why they chose to pick on straws, quote, we simply posed a challenge that encouraged individuals to embrace their own agency and to say no to the single-use plastic straws they were offered every day. That's right. It's not about straws. It's about your power over straws. You don't need to enter a 12-sip program. Just reject a straw and embrace control in your own life. Well, as Dr. Dune predicted, I do love the name Dune Ives. She predicted these straws could become a gateway. And so they have become a gateway because today the AP reports... College football powerhouse Clemson University is ending its tradition of releasing 10,000 balloons into the air before games, a move that's part of sustainability efforts. In Virginia, a campaign that urges alternatives to balloon releases at weddings is expanding, and a town in Rhode Island outright banned the sale of all balloons earlier this year, citing harm to marine life. Balloons are in the crosshairs, and not just at a county fair with a Chinese finger prison as the prize. Balloons which actually account for less environmental impact than straws, are the new enemy. And whereas I oppose the straw ban as doing little, but if I had to be honest, 
It had a minor effect on my life. I could sip a drink without a straw. Yeah, straws do bring me a little bit of joy, but I do if I, again, have to admit, I use them more unthinkingly than intentionally. I'll grant you all that. Balloons are different. Balloons are expressions of pure happiness. They float above us. They delight children. They proclaim uplift and hope. Think of the movie Up. Think of the book and film The Red Balloon. Think of the joy contained in MC Hammer's pants when those particular garments ballooned out. The AP continues in its report. Already a few states restrict balloon releases to some extent, according to the Balloon Council, which represents the industry and advocates for the responsible handling of its products, quote, to uphold the integrity of the professional balloon community. (laughs) The Balloon Council. I can imagine a meeting of this council. Gentlemen, gentlemen, our fourth quarter costs are, I don't know how to say this, rising, plus the mortgage on headquarters does not fully amortize over the term of the note. I don't know what you would call this large final payment at the end, but I find it deflating. Ah, yes, the balloon industry. You know, my grandpappy was an old balloon man from way back. He used to always tell me about consumer purchasing power. He'd say, son, grandson, you there, future podcaster, he'd say, the balloon business is the one industry that worries that when inflation goes up, inflation will go down. Balloons are fun. They're joyous. They're afloat. And the environmental school marms of oceanic harm will not have it. I'm not anti-environmentalist. There should be a ban on chlorofluorocarbons and PCBs. And my God, we do have to regulate greenhouse gases. And the new LED light bulbs, they're better. But all those sacrifices that required us changing our behavior did have benefits. And the benefits outweighed the costs. Or turn it around. The costs of using those items on the environment outweighed the benefits to us as humans on the planet. The calculation with straws and definitely with balloons is quite the opposite. There's almost no demonstrable effect that a ban would have. And now there is a target on a couple of things I like or even love. I do not oppose a straw ban or a balloon ban because I'm against science. I oppose it because of science. There is no science talking about the real benefits of these bans and the justification that it could lead to a meaningful act down the road, it seems like magical thinking. It's just as likely that people will get burned out by a meaningless ban that had no effect on the world. I hope we rethink these bans. Of course, hope is a thing with feathers. If it were encased in plastic, it would be brought down to earth pretty quickly. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader are banding together to ban Band-Aids. The concert to raise money for this cause should be extremely confusing. Also, what happens when Axl Rose hits an audience member with the mic stand? Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is against the plastic tips of shoelaces. Hashtag agitate against it. Hashtag agitate against aglets. The gist. I was out protesting the use of plastic when the police, in the ultimate sign of disrespect, fired into the crowd with plastic bullets and then shackled the protesters with zip ties. Thanks a lot, guys. Oomperu, depperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.